Our scripture passage today is Psalm 46. I would encourage you to turn there now. And if you forgot or don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, please take a pew Bible and see in front of you there and turn to page 471 and follow along. And if you are without a Bible, maybe you're, you're visiting with us or you don't have one at home, take one of those. Let that be our gift to you. Uh, so that you can continue reading God's Word and look into the Gospels, especially today as we look to where our hope is found. Psalm 46. Let's read the Word of God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Oh God, we indeed do thank you for your word this morning, and in particular, wonderful passages of hope as this one before us. Thank you for this gift that is a song. Thank you, as our children reminded us earlier, that you provide us with songs in the night to swage and quench our fear, to draw us closer to yourself. So, Lord, we ask for that even now, that as a result of your word that we would know you more, that we would love you better, and that we would leave this place ready and willing to serve because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We ask this in his name. Amen. As you hopefully know by now, and if you didn't before you came in, maybe the insert helped you uh, know this. This month of October marks the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the spiritual awakening known as the Protestant Reformation. History has marked the start date of this world-changing movement with a singular act by a young unknown monk in Wittenberg, Germany, who on October 31, 1517, took a document with 95 points of concern and nailed them to the church door of his city. This was what one did if you wanted to start a debate about an important matter or a controversy. His concerns, however, were in direct opposition to the practice and theology of the one official church of the Holy Roman Empire 
encompassing all of what we now know as Europe, the Roman Catholic Church and its leader, the Pope. Initially, the church ignored this provincial monk, Martin Luther, but eventually his ideas of reform swept across the continent, and he could no longer be ignored. The Reformation had begun. Virtually every other denomination that exists today of the Christian church was spawned by this critical movement of spiritual reform. And most of us can all trace our roots back to this movement. Well known is the story of how, as a young monk, Martin Luther struggled with a sense of his own sinfulness and his inability to please God. This struggle culminated in the revelation that triggered the Reformation, that righteousness is not within our own ability to achieve. God himself freely gives it justification by faith. So surely such a truth would free a man like Luther from all spiritual darkness, right? He would have it all together now, but it did not. Again and again throughout his life, he descended into severe spiritual anxiety, starting with a particularly long and intense depression that began in 1527, just a few years after the Reformation began. During that particular period, he heard a haunting inner voice that asked him over and over, do you alone know everything? In other words, Martin, what if you're leading Thousands of sincere believers right up to the gates of hell with your radical ideas. Who are you? Historian David Steinmetz describes the fear which Luther experienced. God turned his back on him once and for all, abandoning him to suffer the pains of hell. Feeling alone in the universe, Luther doubted his own faith, his own mission, and the goodness of God. Doubts which, because they verged on blasphemy, drove him deeper and deeper into despair. His prayers met a wall of indifferent silence. He experienced heart palpitations, crying spells, and profuse sweating. He was convinced that he would die soon and go straight to hell. In Luther's words, for more than a week I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by depression and blasphemy of God. His friend Philip Melanchthon said that the terrors afflicting Luther became so severe that he almost died. This drove Luther back to Scripture and to the sacraments. And a third valuable medicine, the fellowship of the church, of the saints. Again, listen to Luther's words. No one should be alone when he opposes Satan. The church and the ministry of the word were instituted for this purpose, that hands may be joined together and one may help another. If the prayer of one doesn't help, the prayer of another will. Faith Luther taught, means letting God be God, accepting the scandal of his hiddenness and trusting him in spite of reason, experience, and even common sense. 
During this prolonged crisis of 1527, Luther wrote a hymn, the one that we sang at the beginning of our service. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. He derived this hymn from Psalm 46, our text this morning. So today as we mark this month and the start of the Reformation some 500 years ago, let us begin by traveling the path that Luther did to find medicine for our fearful souls in this powerful song of our faith, Psalm 46. The first stanza of the psalm or hymn contains verses one through three. And there we read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. A number of years ago, you might recall that people started wearing T-shirts and having bumper stickers that said, no fear. There are lots of pop singers writing songs and Hollywood actors who would have us believe that They've conquered their fears personally by sheer willpower. And they tell you that you can too. Believe me when I say this, that this advice is folly, born out of ignorance and inexperience. Apart from God, there is no such notion as no fear. Fear is about as much a universal emotion as any other. Everyone who has ever lived or will live understands what it is to be afraid. It is likely one of the very first emotions we experience coming out of our mother's wombs, and it probably will be the very last emotion that we experience before dying. Listen to some statistics I found on the internet, and since they're there, you know that they're true. First, from the Chapman University Survey of American Fears that was taken last year. We have a, they did a random sampling of uh, 1,511 people, adults, from across the United States who were asked their level of fear about a huge variety of topics. And here are a few of those. This won't surprise you. 68%, or a little more than two out of three, and use this room as your reference point, every two out of three people in this room, fear death. One in two, half of you, this half of the room, let's say, fear a terrorist attack or not having enough money for the future or people that you love dying. A third, one out of three, fear that the U.S. will be in another world war or they fear being hit by a drunk driver or a devastating tornado or flood or hurricane might come. And one out of four of us, 25%, fear violent crimes like a break-in or sexual assault or a mugging. Isn't this interesting that even though we are likely the most well-protected, most prosperous, and most secure people that the world has ever known, there is still 
such a great deal of anxiety within American culture. Another study from the National Institute of Mental Health said that 90% of the things that we do fear are considered to be insignificant issues. 88% of the things we fear in relation to our health won't even happen. 60% of the things feared will never even take place, and 30% of the things that people fear happened in the past, and there's nothing we can do about it. Fear is huge. Billions of dollars are spent to combat fear through pharmaceutical industry and medical doctors and psychiatric professionals. Whole institutions are dedicated to helping folks manage fear. And yet, here in the opening of this psalm, in its first stanza, we have a bold promise. The psalmist has the audacity to say that if you are a child of God, you do not have to be afraid. You do not have to be gripped by fear. Again, in this first stanza, we see your first point in your outline, that God's nature is incompatible with fear. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. This phrase at the beginning of the psalm, the psalmist then develops it into a refrain and puts it at the end of the next two stanzas, stanzas two and three of the hymn where he says, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Notice the parallel thoughts. The Lord of hosts is with us is another way of saying he's a very present help. He's here, he's with us. And the God of Jacob is our fortress, another way of saying our God is a refuge and strength. And so each stanza, he's, he's bookending this refrain, trying to get this into our heads, these truths of the gospel, these truths of the scripture, pounding it in, if you will. So first, in that refrain, we see that God is a protective father. In referring to him as the God of Jacob, the psalmist is reminding us of the relational status that God has with his people. <clears throat> the God of Jacob is a father to us, one who has bought us and has a blood investment in us. When children are small, their parents spend a great deal of time and energy figuring out ways to help them survive childhood, don't they? We've all been there. Young parents, we know we've been there. We put up barriers, baby gates, and corrals. We just want them to live through those opening years. We lock cabinet doors. We have childproof prescription bottles that we can't get into. And we put them in car seats and buckle them in and strap them in. We are, in essence, trying to keep them protected within a fortress, a stronghold, so nothing and no one can hurt them. This is what God is for his people. A fortress, a strong tower, a bulwark, as Luther says, a refuge. If our perfect, loving, heavenly Father is himself our fortress and refuge, then what or who do we have to be afraid of? Secondly, God is a powerful ruler. And I'll apologize ahead of time. I really did get carried away with the alliteration this week. But, <clears throat> so a few things are forced, but I just had to, I had to go there. 
God is not only our fortress, but he is our strength. He is the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, is another way of translating that. The Lord of the armies of heaven. Not only are we completely protected from a defensive standpoint in our fortress, but the one who is the Lord of hosts is leading the charge against our enemies on our behalf in a mighty offensive. This is not a picture that we 21st century Americans have of Jesus very often, is it? We don't like this portrait of Christ. Listen to the description that we have from John's revelation when this Christ will return for us. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, the armies of heaven, folks, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's appropriate that the first time we are introduced to this title for God, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies of heaven, is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. For it is in that book, the prophet Samuel that were introduced to a small shepherd boy that would become God's warrior king. The one who would typify the Messiah to come. Do you know what the last words that David spoke to Goliath were just before releasing that stone that would smash into the giant's forehead? Here they are. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David knew that he couldn't defeat Goliath, but David wasn't afraid because he knew that the Lord of hosts, God Almighty, the Lord Sabaoth, the God of the armies of heaven was fighting the battle for him. Folks, if the Lord of the armies of heaven is leading the charge and is fighting the battle for us, then what or who do we have to be afraid of? The third aspect of God's nature that makes it incompatible with our fear is that God is a present companion. I'm so glad that the psalmist didn't merely say, God is our refuge and strength, a help in trouble. For then we may have had the impression that we have to call for this God to come and help us. And he might be busy helping somebody else, or he might be delayed. We may have to endure a while on our own. Oh no, Christian. For our eternal protective father, our powerful ruler, is also a very present help in trouble. The Lord of hosts, the God of armies, is with us. 
He is not sometimes present. He is not present if you call or even if you have enough faith. No, he is very present, whether you sense him or not, whether you feel his presence or not, whether you even want him there or not. This all-powerful, protective God is there always. So if the Lord of hosts is with us, if this God is a very present help in trouble, what or who do we have to be afraid of? Even if the earth crumbles beneath us, even if the mountains come crashing into the sea, even if the floodwaters rise and swell, and even if the earth shakes and trembles beneath our feet, we will not fear, for God's nature is incompatible with fear. Now we move on to the second stanza in verses four through seven, and there we see that God's city is a refuge from fear. Some scholars believe that this psalm was written in response to the Assyrians' siege of Jerusalem. We can't be certain that that was the occasion, but it certainly makes sense. The Assyrians were led in this siege by Sennacherib when Hezekiah was king of Judah and Isaiah was God's prophet. The Assyrians had already come south through that part of the world and had mowed everybody down. They had steamrolled everyone, and nobody was able to withstand them. And Jerusalem wasn't going to put up a fight, humanly speaking. This was easy picking. They weren't going to be any match for them. In 2 Kings, we're told that Hezekiah and Isaiah went to the Lord in prayer, pleading for God to save his people. When they woke up on the morning of battle... All 185,000 Assyrian soldiers had been slain in the night by the hand of the Lord of hosts. God's city, Jerusalem, the city of peace, Zion, had been a refuge of peace for God's people, and they didn't even have to lift their hands in violence. As those who are members of God's kingdom and dwell in God's spiritual city of Zion, we too can take comfort in God's city being a refuge from fear. We read in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Seems like an odd place to talk about a river. Ancient and modern day Jerusalem have no river running through it. Hezekiah did, however, divert water to the city from some distant source through underground tunnels that you can go and see today in preparation of the Assyrian siege in order to provide a fresh supply of water for the city flowing right through it. Scripture also tells us that in that future New Jerusalem that a river of life will flow from the throne of God through the middle of the city. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well that he was the source of living water and eternal life. In that beloved Psalm 23, we read that the good shepherd leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. Is there anything in the natural world quite as peaceful as just relaxing and hanging out near a body of water? 
God's city with its life-giving water flowing through the middle of it is a source of peace for his people. A place of refreshment and rest. And again, here we find God present in his holy city. It is the holy habitation of the Most High. The city of God is under the protection of God, for he is the most important citizen. He is there. And so secondly, it is a fortress of protection. Is there any safer place to be than where God is? Not only is God's presence there as a protective force, but it provides a firm foundation for God's people. This city shall not be moved, the psalmist says, even though the whole earth is crumbling around it. The city of God holds fast. It is a pillar of strength. Finally, we see that God's city is a place of promise. For God will help her when morning dawns. We can rest well on the eve of battle, folks, for we have the sure hope and promise that when dawn awakens on the day of battle, the Lord of hosts will be there ready to take the battle to the enemy and utterly defeat them. God's city is the dwelling place of his people. It's where we reside. It is where the saved dwell. But did you notice then that the psalm contrasts that with the city of man, our former dwelling place, and the home of the unbeliever? In verse 6, we read that the nations rage. This is a place of unrest and carnage. It is not a place of rest. The kingdoms totter. They are unsure and unstable. He, God, utters his voice. The earth melts. These cities of man are places of judgment, and ultimate destruction. But, the psalmist gives us the refrain again, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. In stanza one, we saw the nature of God himself being the reason to allay our fears. He is our protective father, our powerful ruler, our present companion. And if that wasn't enough, stanza two points us to our dwelling place, God's city. And unlike the crumbling city of man, a place of fear, God's city is a source of peace, a fortress of protection, a pillar of strength, and a place of promise. But the psalmist isn't done. And at this point, one might be tempted to think, so Mark, are you saying that if I just trust God, I want to worry about the things that cause me to be afraid happening to me anymore? course not. The fact that we have the psalm would presuppose that these things may very well happen to us and will. God doesn't promise to keep bad things from happening to us or to completely eliminate fear from our lives. But what he does promise is to be there right in the middle of it. Have you ever thought it interesting how the Lord handled the situation with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? You know, he could have sent a tornado 
to destroy the furnace. He could have sent heavy rains to put out the fire. He could have changed Nebuchadnezzar's mind and heart before he threw him into the furnace. Why, 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 why would he make them go through that? Why did he allow them to be thrown into the furnace? His faithful servants, they were standing up for what was right, and yet he let them be cast in. But you know, if you know the story, that he was in the middle of the furnace with them. And ultimately, and this is what's hard for us to see, it was better for them to be thrown in. Because God had bigger things in store. Isaiah, the prophet who prayed for deliverance from the Assyrian armies that we just talked about, records these incredible words from the Lord in his, in his prophecy. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. So maybe you acknowledge that these propositional truths about God and where we dwell are true. But what about those times when we are afraid? What about when the rubber meets the road and we're in the middle of it? When the circumstance we find ourselves in warrant some fear. <laughs> Finally, in the third stanza, in verses 8 through 11, God gives us an invitation to escape fear. Come. Come. You, come. There's the invitation. Come and what? Come, behold the works of the Lord. God's first invitation to escape fear is to look at his actions, past, present, and future. We have a thorough record of God's actions contained right here in his word. Over and over again, the record of God shows his faithfulness to the covenant. He always fulfills his promises. He always comes through for his people. He never fails. He never missteps. He never makes a mistake, and he never does wrong. The record is clear. And what about now? Can't you look at your own life and your own walk with the Lord, your own testimony, and see his faithfulness to you? Has he saved you? Has he blessed you? Has he given you what you deserve? Has he shown you that he loves you? And what about the future? Well, the scriptures are full and replete with promises of God, and we can be sure that they're sure because he's fulfilled them in the past. We're going to a better land. The choir saying, ain't of that good news. One day, I'm leaving this world, I'm leaving it all behind, and God has a place prepared for me in his presence for eternity. We're going to dwell with a lover of our souls forever. 
So if you want to stop being afraid, stop looking at your circumstances and look to the work of the one who controls your circumstances. Read the record of his faithfulness. Marvel at his continued work in building his kingdom right here in our midst and look to the hope of our future with him. Stop looking at the crumbling, fallen world around you and look to the verities of the scripture. Find your confidence in the truth of the words of life. Secondly, God invites us to let go of the fight, to be still and know that I am God. I remember having a false understanding of this verse for many, many years. I thought it was sort of out of context. I was thinking of it in terms of being this quiet, passive sort of idea of where I should be in meditation and contemplation or something like that. But in its context, we see clearly that what it really is, it's a call to stop fighting, to cease striving. We think it's all up to us to defend ourselves, don't we, often? We're convinced that we have to stand up for ourselves because no one else is going to. Wait a minute. What have we been reading? God is our refuge and strength. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The battle belongs to the Lord. Get out of his way already. I love that God gives us the father-child relationship as a picture of our relationship to him. It's something we can all grasp onto and, and something that we can understand clearly, isn't it? Whether you have children or not, it doesn't matter. You still know what that relationship looks like. You, we've all had a, a father or someone who's, who's cared and, for us and loved us. I can see in my mind's eye a time when our rather tall boys were not so tall. You know, back when they had to look up to me rather than the other way around. During those early years when our children got angry or were in turmoil or they were fighting against us or afraid, sometimes the only remedy was to embrace them with both arms so tightly that they couldn't move and say to them, stop fighting me, calm down, be still, I've got this. I'm your dad, and I love you. God says to you and me, be still and know that I am God. Mark, stop it. Be still now, calm down. I've got this. I'm your dad, your Abba Father, and I love you. Look at his actions. Let go of the fight. It's his to win. And love him to distraction. Be still and know that I am God. It's about relationship. What or who do you love most in this life if you had to take an honest inventory for a few minutes? Whatever that thing or person is, 
It is likely what you run to when you are afraid. It is the place in which you try to find protection, strength, peace, and hope. It may be a substance, alcohol, medication, food, sex. Maybe a discipline, exercise, or meditation, yoga, or counseling. It could be a person, a wife or husband, a a lover or friend, a parent, sibling, or child. But you know, and I know, that none of these things or people can be all that you need them to be. None of them can eliminate your fear. Well, they may distract you from it. They may make it feel better for the moment, but the fear comes back. In fact, because there are idols, many of these things, they, they, they make you more fearful because of the fear of losing hold of them. And it compounds your fear. But as we are fighting and running away from our worst nightmare, God grabs us with his almighty arms and tenderly says, Child, stop fighting. Be still. Know me. Love me. I am God Almighty, your Father in heaven. I am your refuge from a weary world, and I am your strength in weakness. Don't look at the scary things around you, but focus your spiritual eyes upon Jesus. He's got you. In fact, he has set a table for you right in the presence of your enemies. They can't get you there. Come and dine with him. Rest in him. He is the answer. He is the one that all the nations of the earth are going to exalt one day. Don't look to anyone or anything else to satisfy what only Jesus can. Be still and know the one that is, I am. Be still and know that he is God. If you are a child of God today, if Jesus has saved you from your sins and you have repented and asked for his forgiveness, then you belong to him. And if you belong to him, you have access to him and all of his promises. In the upper room before Jesus' crucifixion, he spent some time preparing his friends for his departure. He gave them some last words, if you will. In John 14, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Folks, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So we will not fear. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress.